3: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com
1: For corals that live beneath the sea, their days are marked by celibacy. Excepting one night when the moon is just right, they engage in a million strong orgy. But for them to secure the prize, corals must be ever wise, for there is a catch. In order to dispatch, their orgasms must be synchronized. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb, and I'm Christian Sager. And that may
4: have sounded like the Dr. Seuss version of coral sex, but actually, it was a bit from Mara J. Hart's *Sex in the Sea*, which we've talked about on the show
1: before, and we're going to do again this episode. Yeah, it's a great book. We talked about it in our previous episode that was devoted to the weird sexual ways of the ossuodax, yeah, uh, the bone uh, worm the bone-eating worm uh, of the ocean. Yeah. And uh, in that episode, uh, corals came up and we said, hey, there's a lot of stuff to to discuss here. Why don't we just have you back on in the summer? We'll do a whole episode on corals. And we wanted to time it for the summer
4: because we're in coral spawning season right now, as Mara will discuss with us. So the way this episode is going to be set up is we're going to give you just like a brief primer on corals and their reproduction. And then we're going to talk to Mara because she's the expert on this. And we really get into all the details, especially because Mara just got back a week ago from... The, what sounds like the world's biggest conference on, uh, coral ecology. So, yeah. uh, she had a lot of, like, groundbreaking news for us.
1: Yeah, some, some of it rather sobering, but, uh, some of it very exciting as well. You know, I think one of the big take-homes here that I got out of the research that I hope that, that, uh, that listeners get too is this idea that, And I feel like this is sometimes lost in our just media absorption of of the information is that, you know, coral reefs, uh, corals are not just like a background organism. Right. They are the, the the bedrock of these ecological systems making life possible in areas that would otherwise just be barren and lifeless. I think for a lot of people, the way that they think
4: about them is almost as if that they're like plant life. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit, even for myself, until we sat down and really Did the research for this episode, I didn't quite understand their anatomy. Yeah. And so maybe that we can sort of help set that up for the audience, for you out there. And uh, then when we talk tomorrow about just how dire the consequences are right now for coral ecology, that'll, you know, drive home the importance of trying to help these uh, critters out.
1: Yeah. I feel like at times we almost have an amateur aquarium. Um, yeah. View of it where we think, oh, well, I, I'm, the fish is what I'm excited about. Anything else is just like a plant that we throw in, or maybe like a, a, a ceramic Buddha that floats to the bottom. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And then in looking at the coral reefs too, we we see the finished picture. We see the corals, we see all the fish and all the creatures. I feel that it's kind of like looking at Las Vegas and seeing all this life, all the light and the fountains and saying, look at that. Life is just splendid there. It's just going, just going splendidly without realizing that without Hoover Dam, without the, yeah. without the necessary, um, um, you know, water system in place, there would be no life there at all. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Corals are, uh, a, a hugely important ecosystem
4: for, and this is a stat a quarter of all marine fish species. So they're very important. They're not just pretty structures that happen to be underwater. They also benefit us, I'm by us I mean human beings, by buffeting coastal regions from strong waves, and I'll get into it in a little bit further. Uh, they promote our economy in huge ways, too. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- these are super important, and uh, they have totally weird, bizarre orgy sex, too, which is fun to yeah. talk about. So let's get into it. Let's talk about coral reefs uh, and coral polyps, and what's the story here? So they're actually made of two things. Now, when we think about corals, or at least the way I did, I always thought of just the limestone skeletons, right? Mm-hmm. These, these formations. But corals themselves are actually tiny little polyps, uh, and the, they excrete the limestone that creates these skeletons. Now, I said earlier, we talk a lot about sort of the dire threats that they're facing. They're actually being destroyed at a rate that we'll see 70% of them gone in less than 40 years. That was one stat that I read. When we just talked to Mara, she said 10% of all reefs are already permanently lost 30% are expected to be lost in the next few decades. So that's that's a lot. Yeah. Um, and why is that? Well, we talked to her about that as well. But real quick primer, if you even shift one degree of temperature in the water that they're in, it can damage them, causing them to expel the algae that's within them, which they have a, uh, a
1: symbiotic relationship with this and this is the key to their ability to um to colonize these these rather hostile regions absolutely yeah uh, and they're
4: also facing external threats from hurricanes, predators, pollution, overfishing. And from us just talking to Mara, uh, she did a great job of explaining what a bleaching event is, which is the actual impact of these temperature changes, causing the algae to separate from the coral polyps and basically either killing them or making it so that they don't have enough energy to reproduce. So why should you care? Here's why. If you want just a purely selfish reason, if all you care about is uh, your own well-being, it's important to our economy, actually. Uh, they provide jobs for fishing, construction, and, believe it or not, pharmaceuticals. <laughs> There's an estimated $375 billion a year that come out of coral reefs, so... That's pretty huge. We don't want to lose these, even on just like a purely selfish monetary level, outside of any kind of like altruistic ecological level. Okay? All right. Let's roll into the basic biology of corals. Okay. So corals were originally thought to be plants. So I I wasn't alone in that. And if you're out there and you thought the same thing, scientists thought that too. But they're actually tiny little soft-bodied creatures and they're carnivores, too. They're fixed to one spot as a polyp and it's they basically have these barbed, stinging cells that are called nematocysts. And these are what they use to capture food, like little tiny fish or zooplankton. They're only about three millimeters long and they grow to become reefs that stretch for miles when they combine together with their limestone and, and their huge colonies. The polyps themselves are basically, and maris. Says this as well. They're basically just a gut with a mouth that's surrounded by tentacles. So it's like a teeny tiny little Lovecraft
1: monster. Yeah, the thing that you uh, discredited as a mere plant turned out to be uh, closer to your heart yeah, the whole time. Exactly. <laughs> now
4: we talked about the symbiosis that they have with algae. Well, the algae that they live together with are called zooxanthellae and uh, um, I believe Mara says that it's okay to refer to them as zooks. Yeah, That's that's kind of like the, the in-crowd uh, nickname that they have. But they're an algae that lives inside the cell walls of corals. And the algae provides them with byproducts of photosynthesis that then feeds the polyp. The polyp subsequently shelters the algae and provides them with the chemicals that they need for photosynthesis. So up to 90% of the algae's energy is transferred into the polyp. So you can see now why if that algae is forced to flee because of coral bleaching, why the polyp would be weakened significantly. Okay, so this energy helps them to do things like produce the limestone that they are covered in, and that's made of calcium carbonate. They secrete it from their base, and it creates a protective skeleton that they basically hide in from predators. Uh, and because they rarely exist alone, they also join together with other polyps as a colony and act basically like a single organism. Colonies, now I just told you one polyp is like three millimeters, Colonies can weigh tons. These things are huge, Uh, and they have many branches that form out, and this is what we call reefs. Okay, so let's get to the nitty-gritty of what this is about, all right? Today's episode is about coral sex reproduction, and they reproduce in two ways, or they grow in two ways. The first is they just keep adding limestone to their base, and they secrete upward and outward, right? So the, the reef gets bigger that way. The, the main way, the, the, what we end up talking to Mara about primarily is reproduction, and they produce asexually and sexually. Asexual reproduction is where they divide and create identical clones of themselves, and we're going to talk to Mara about why that's not always such a good thing. Mm-hmm. But they can basically make fragments of themselves and then reattach to different parts of a reef and then continue to grow. Sexual reproduction, this is the weird stuff, and this is what we spend a lot of time talking with Mara about. This is basically when they send out their eggs and sperm, and it works like this. Their sexual reproduction only occurs once a year, shortly after a full moon. It's called broadcast spawning. And this is where the colonies release a cloud of brightly colored eggs and sperm into the ocean. And these bundles are not only buoyant, but they are also attached to their parental polyps by, like, umbilical strings of mucus. Mara describes it as being like this pink cloud of snowflakes floating upward. It, it sounds kind of beautiful, actually, if, if you get the opportunity to see it. Shrimp and worms that are around there, part of the ecology of the coral reef, they're going to eat this stuff as it floats upward. But but basically, the polyps turn pink right before they release it. Uh, One of the articles that I read for research on this described it as milky pink waters. The eggs are then ejected, they float upward to the surface, and they wait to get fertilized. But they have nothing to protect them. So the first 12 hours that they're out there in development, they're real fragile. Mara actually describes these globules she says this in her book and in our interview with her and I like it she says they look like pink orange nerd candies yeah. which is pretty fun um, and that gave me like a really good picture because I I, I don't know about you Robert but I've never been to uh, a beach area that has coral
1: reefs and I grew up on the ocean um I had not really experienced it until earlier this year when I went to Jamaica and got to, oh, uh, got yeah. to do some snorkeling uh, uh, with the uh, with my wife and see some of it in action and I was just really blown away by it. Because it's one thing to see like the, this, you know, the super HD footage, I and mean, yeah. it's beautiful, but it seems like another world. It's like watching Avatar, but to, totally. to actually poke around there and see it in real life, it's, uh, it, it's quite amazing. So one of the things we talked to Mara about that no one quite has
4: the exact answer to is how these corals are timing it so that they all spawn at the exact same time every year. And there's a theory that the solar uh, they they're taking solar cues or wind cues to figure out the month that they should spawn in and then they're taking lunar cues somehow to figure out which day they should spawn in australian scientists have recently found out however that when they're exposed to even tiny little waves that coral can break into identical pieces that can each develop their own larvae so this is the clone process it's similar Their stem cells then reassemble and continue to develop. So there are a lot of identical twin coral polyps out there, but as we talk about with Mara, that's not very, that's not exactly a good thing if you need diversity to sort of protect you from ecological problems. So, but we have billions of naked embryos on the surface of the ocean during these spawnings. There's a potential to create even more clones. When they conducted this first experiment that I was speaking of in Australia, 50% of the embryos that they exposed fragmented and then reorganized so they could develop larvae. So the cloning thing is is fairly prevalent. Now, 75% of the zoox algae corals; those are hermaphrodites and. They're basically both male and female. They can release sperm and eggs, but some are only male and some are only female. Uh, some even fertilize their own eggs internally if they can snatch up the sperm. This is called brooding. They also release fully developed larvae. Now, the sexuality of these uh, particular polyps tends to be consistent across the different species of uh, corals that we're talking about here. Another number, 75% of the zooks corals also spawn eggs and sperm for external fertilization. So the broadcast spawning we're talking about is their majority of their reproductive uh, process. So uh, this, is, this is contrary to the brooding that I was speaking about earlier. Now, when species brood, like I'm talking about, this is when they're fertilizing their eggs internally, they can store the unfertilized ova for weeks at a time, whereas spawning species requires this very specific time frame of hours that we talked about with Mara. Sometimes colonies of different species spawn simultaneously. This is when hybridization occurs. We know that it happens. We just don't really know the extent. And as we'll talk about with Mara, most hybrids are sterile. Uh, but it's hopefully avoided when most species of polyps spend their time spawning at different intervals. Um, we talk about that as well uh, with uh, particular kinds of species, the boulder coral. And what was the other one?
1: Lobe star coral. And, and indeed, there are also some, some interesting twists and turns with hybridization uh, that I think uh, everyone will, will be rather uh, delighted by. Yeah, and we
4: were totally surprised by it too, because it's brand new research. Uh, another thing that's super fascinating about this broadcast spawning, it can happen over vast distances. Corals can basically take extended sea voyages once they float to the top, and they can survive for months before they fully integrate and sink back down to the bottom. Now, when an egg does get fertilized, after the embryo forms, it actually swims. So, So sinking isn't really the right term I should have used there. It swims to the bottom to anchor itself. And scientists thought... Until 1984, that all coral reproduction was internal, like this brooding method. But then in Science Magazine, somebody published a description of the mass spawning event at the Great Barrier Reef. And here we are now, you you know, spending an entire episode talking about it. So this is relatively new science to humans. A study uh, in a Smithsonian article that I read for this, that's called Watching Coral Sex, indicated that if corals spawn just 15 minutes out of sync with their majority of the rest of their species, it greatly reduces their chance of reproductive success. So, you know, this is why it's so important that it happens all at the same time and that the area is protected. There's just a lot of factors that go into the ecology of keeping these reefs safe. Uh, and then to go along with, uh, Mara's nerd, uh, candy example, mm-hmm. one of the other scientists described it as being a little bit like tapioca, uh, that like you're basically floating in a sea of pink <laughs> tapioca.
1: It's like swimming in bubble tea, essentially. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that. Bubble tea. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to call up Mara and discuss coral sex. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Hi, Mara. Thanks so much for uh, coming on the show again for a summertime discussion of corals. Uh, we had such a great time chatting with you before on the, um, the Osodex episode that we recorded. Uh, so it's nice to have you uh, back on to discuss corals
3: thank you so much for having me i'm i'm really excited to be here and to be able to chat with you guys about definitely one of my favorite animals which are corals
4: so Mara, i didn't realize this until like almost five minutes ago i've read through the book we've talked to you before but you have a background as a coral reef ecologist right
3: that's right yeah this they're where i really um got started in in my career doing marine science so they they hold a very special place in my heart corals and sharks
4: <laughs> okay, awesome, well, good, because we get a lot of questions uh, I guess because <laughs> corals have a very strange reproductive practice.
3: This is true they do they're they're pretty amazing, uh especially given that they can't move, and yeah. they are pretty simple animals I, I don't like to use the word simple, but you know basically they're they're sort of this jelly like blob that sits with extending little tentacles out of a little hard cup. That they manufacture themselves. So, for folks out there who are familiar with finding Nemo, um and know that he lives in an anemone, which is a—I almost messed it up—anemone. <laughs> uh, they're they're close cousins of, of of those animals, and so they they sit in these little cups all day long with their tentacles outstretched into into the environment, sort of taking uh, little particles out of the water to feed on. Uh, but they have some other cool tricks up their sleeve. But the, the sexual reproduction in corals is pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, you you present it so well in the book. I almost I almost hate to ask you to describe to describe it here. I, you know, I'd almost rather encourage the readers to, to read it. But can you take uh, just a few minutes to describe for us the synchronized uh, hotel orgy of the corals?
3: <laughs> sure, I'd be happy to. So, again, corals can't move, right? So they're stuck. They're cemented to the seafloor. So this means they can't go out and date to find their mates. They're, they have to allow their gametes, which are their eggs and their sperm, to do the dating and mating for them. And I should say there's two types of corals. The one I'm about to describe that does this big synchronized uh, orgy, these are called broadcast spawners. So they release both their sperm and their eggs into the water column. And the best way to ensure that their sperm and eggs are going to mix the sperm and eggs of other corals and be able to make the next generation is to time that release with their neighbors. So if you imagine that corals are sort of sitting in their little cups and their cups sort of form these big colonies, and then there's multiple colonies along the reef, it's kind of like thinking that um, the sperm and eggs are, are... getting together in a hotel room, right? And these (laughs) corals have to make sure that they're going to synchronize their mate, their release. But then it's also like that couple in that hotel room that's synchronizing their release is also coordinating with their neighbors, maybe in, in the two rooms on either side. And then those neighbors are also synchronizing with their neighbors. And so the whole floor of the hotel are all coming together and being able to synchronize their climax at exactly the same time. And then actually because there's miles and miles of reef and millions and millions of corals, you've actually got to blow it up to imagine that every single hotel room across say the entire city of New York is full of couples that are all climaxing <laughs> at exactly the same time. So it's, it's pretty phenomenal when you think about the scale at which this synchronization is occurring, and, you know, given uh, sort of our pop culture, and, and again, I, I talk about, you know, if you look at any cover of Cosmo, it's all about how to, you know, connect better with your partner. We, we seem to struggle to do this on a one-on-one basis. Meanwhile, corals are doing this across millions of individuals, no problem, year after year, uh, down to, you know, really, really fine timing. So we're talking... Within you know within moments uh, of of their their sort of buddy colonies up and down the reef.
1: And this is a once a year occurrence.
3: It is so. What happens is corals sort of spend the entire year celibate, building up the energy and storing the energy to make these uh, fatty balls of sperm and eggs. So it's called a bundle, and the bundle looks like a for those of you who know nerd candies, kind of a small pinkish orange. Mm-hmm. Colored sphere. And it takes a lot of energy to pack, pack all these eggs and sperm together. So they wait, and again, um, it's a once a year event. And it normally happens um, for different species, it'll happen within a two to three day window around the full moon. And it normally happens in the summertime. So there's likely some. Uh, water temperature cues. There's definitely cues from, from the sunset. It often happens at night after sunset. And, um, moon phase also coordinates it around that, that full moon time. So there's a whole bunch of, uh, environmental cues that they're using to kind of start to align and then, and then let it all go. But it's, yeah, so each coral will only go once. They've got one little sperm egg bundle to release and that's it. Uh, so within a colony, you might have one or two days of of different polyps going off, but in general, there's one peak night where the vast majority of of all these animals are releasing at the same time.
1: Now, of course, there's a a reason for all of this. So what what are the the core advantages to this once-a-year sexual blowout?
3: Yeah, so again, um, it's really expensive, to manufacture these, especially the eggs um, and all the sperm, and you really want to make sure that in the environment, like an ocean, where there's lots of currents and lots of predators, <laughs> that you are getting your your sperm and eggs to mix with other sperm and eggs from your fellow species, so that you can make the next generation. And by coordinating the timing really precisely, you up the odds that your sperm and eggs are going to bump into you another coral, sperm, and eggs and be able to fertilize and make make that viable little larvae. But it also helps to release all these millions and millions of gametes all at once because it sort of swamps out the predators as well. And the, uh, the sex acts of corals, it sort of starts really peacefully. And it's this really, it's really quite a miraculous event to, to witness and, and folks can see this because it happens in shallow reefs. You can take a flashlight and even just snorkel um, down in the Caribbean or off the Great Bay the Reef and be able to actually watch this happen. Um, but it, it starts off really beautifully where these little bundles form and then it's sort of this slow release and, and the sperm and eggs are buoyant so they float up and it creates sort of like a snowstorm underwater but the, the snowflakes are bright pink and, and float to the surface. And it's, it's really quite magical. And then all of a sudden it turns into this like crazy, I I think I refer to it as like a rave where (laughs) shrimp are coming in and worms are coming in and fish are coming in and then bigger fish are coming to eat the little fish that are eating the corals. You know, it's, it's chaos. And if you're, if you are diving down there, stuff is hitting your mask. It's going in your face. It's like bumping your regulator out of your mouth. I mean, it's like, it's a wild, All you can eat was the (laughs) And so for the corals, it's helpful to know that everybody else is releasing their stuff too so that it's not just your sperm and eggs that are going to get sort of focused on, but hopefully you'll satiate all the mouths out there and a couple will make it to the surface where they can break apart and and sort of mix and, and, and form that next generation. So doing it all at once has its benefits for a couple of reasons.
4: So, Mara, I got a question just for clarification. Can you explain Mm -hmm. for our audience what we mean when we're talking about gametes? Are we talking about the sperm, the eggs, both? Is this the bundle we're referring to?
3: Right, yeah. So gamete is the scientific term for a sex cell, and it's either a sperm or an egg. Okay. So it counts for both. Yep. So the bundles are, their gametes, because it's the sperm and eggs um, sort of tightly wrapped around each other in these in these little balls, and when they get to the surface, they actually break open, and the sperm and multiple eggs. So you have lots and lots of sperm and lots and lots of eggs inside each bundle, and when they break open at the surface, that's when the the sperm and eggs can actually bump and mix with the sperm and eggs of other coral individual to make a new. A new offspring.
4: And one thing that I think we should quickly clarify here too is you mentioned this already, but we're specifically talking about broadcast spawning coral reefs. There's other forms of reproduction for coral reefs, right?
3: Right. Yeah. So corals are, they're really cool animals. There's hundreds and hundreds of species of coral, thousands, I think. And um, the ones that build the big reefs, the ones that we think of when we think about coral reefs, tend to be these broadcast spawners that do these mass um, spawning events, these big orgies. There are others, however, that are brooders, which mean that they release their sperm into the environment, but they actually hold eggs so that um, the sperm have to come into the the coral colony and fertilize the eggs There's also some coral that are, so again, the, the broadcast spawners are hermaphrodites they're producing both um sex cells, right? Sperm right. and eggs. But there are some corals that the colony is either female or male. They have separate sexes, in which case they'll release um into the environment the sperm and then the females again hold the eggs. And there's tons of varieties sort of in between. Um, I just came back from a coral conference, the big uh, coral conference happens once every four years and it was just last week in Hawaii and I saw this great presentation um, by Dr. Kristen Marhaver who works out of Karmabi in um, Curacao and they're finding some corals that seem to be doing this weird kind of in between where they don't really brood but they're sort of holding the eggs up in the tentacles but not really letting them go so it's like Hmm. this funky yeah in between so one thing with corals is that they, they do it all and they seem to do it in lots of different ways that we're still learning about.
4: Huh. This
1: seems like a good opportunity for us to hone in on two particular species you bring up in the book. Yeah, indeed. You make a special mention of the, the lobe star coral and the boulder star coral, which I found this particularly interesting because we're talking about this sort of, this broadcast um, orgy of reproduction here, but it, uh, it seems like it doesn't pay to bump into just anybody, uh, in a broadcast orgy.
3: That's right. This this is definitely true. Um, And it's, again, (laughs) it's not something that we mammals tend to have to worry about because we are pretty certain of uh, who it is that we're mating with, who our gametes, our sperm and eggs are mixing with at the time of sex. But for corals, um, they don't have that control, right? They release their sperm and eggs into the water column and they're hoping that they do it in the right time period so that it bumps into other sperm and eggs of not only fit, healthy other corals, but corals of the right species. So coral there are corals that are very closely related, and the lobe and the boulder star are examples of that. And it is possible that if the sperm from, say, a lobe star coral bumps into the egg of a boulder star coral, uh, you know, they could they could fertilize that egg and a larvae could form, that's a hybrid. And hybrids are not always the best outcome for, for a species for a couple of reasons. And, and folks may be most familiar with um, sort of the cross between a horse and a donkey. That right. creates a mule, mm-hmm. right? Mules are sterile, like a mule can't go on to reproduce. And so that sort of idea that hybrids are these genetic dead ends um it it kind of defeats the whole purpose of having sex in the first place right which is to create future offspring and hopefully that those offspring will be fit and create the next generation the next generation Mm -hmm. so hybrids sort of um squelch that in many cases and um i don't know if you guys want me to go into it but there is actually some really cool work that uh, it has been done since the book came out about some coral hybrid stuff. So we could, we could talk about that if you want. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Um, yes, yeah, uh,
1: yeah,
4: certainly. Especially because like one of the things that I'd like to clarify just from the book itself is like getting back to the lobe star and the boulder star coral. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. very specific ways in which they are compatible, right? But it's not always so easy for one to fertilize the other.
3: Right. So because of this risk, of forming hybrids. Corals have come up with a couple of of tactics and there is a level of screening that happens at the level of the egg. Um, Some eggs, um, some species are very prude (laughs) and they won't let sperm in from other species or they make it very difficult. But other eggs are are much more um, promiscuous, if you will, and are if a a sperm from another species is around, it, it can fertilize. So to help kind of create more barriers to hybrids and really separate the species, corals, the timing of these uh, orgies is very, very specific. So, again, the lobe star coral and the boulder star coral are a great example of this because they spawn on the same nights. You know, they use the same environmental cues, the warming temperature, the moon phase, and then the timing of sunset. But what happens is with the um, low star coral, or no, sorry, with the boulder star coral, the boulder star are the early birds. So they will start to release, um, it's about two hours after sunset. So if you're down in the Caribbean, sunsets may be around 7. So the, the boulder stars start to release their eggs around 9 o'clock. And okay. it really is that precise, year on year it's within two to three minutes of the year before that the wow. same colony will spawn at the same time. I mean, it's, you absolutely could synchronize your watches to it. It's, it's pretty awesome. And then the low star coral is about an hour and a half delayed from the boulder star. So they would be, you know, maybe 1030, 11 ish. And that separation in time turns out to be just about the time it takes for the boulder star sperm fizzle out after about an hour and a half. So the fact that they go first at around, you know, say nine o'clock, by the time the lobe star go off and they release their eggs, there's not a lot of the uh, boulder star sperm left that has a lot of, you know, much energy, you know, to get out there and find their eggs. Um, So that hour and a half spacing seems to be just enough time to allow the first coral in this case, the boulder star for its eggs to be fertilized by its own sperm. And then by the time the next species goes off, there's, there's really not too many of their eggs left to be fertilized um, by any new sperm coming into the picture from another species and any of the first sperm that are around sort of are a little withered at that point and unlikely to go and fertilize the new eggs that are released by the second species. OK, so I know it's a little little complicated, but well,
4: that's why that, I asked. Yeah. It's... Delay. Yeah. So tell us about this new hy- hybrid research that you said that's come out, because I, it, maybe it answers a question that I was going to ask you anyways, which is how frequently are coral hybrids actually sterile?
3: Yeah. So it's a it's a really important question. And Dr. Nicole Fogarty um, is studying this extensively. And, and this is her, her work that I'll, I'll summarize here. And she, again, just presented sort of a new component of it just last week at this big coral conference. And she has been studying this question in two species of endangered corals in the Caribbean called elkhorn and staghorn. Okay. And these are the beautiful big branching species that used to dominate some of the shallow reef crest environments. And have been really quite wiped out. They, they were the first um, invertebrates to ever go on to um, the endangered species list, I believe, or one of the few. Um, so they've really been hammered. And we're trying to figure out why and, and try to figure out what this means for their reproduction. And, and what Dr. Fogarty found is... If you look in the fossil record which is for corals really um pretty robust because they create these these hard skeletons they actually are captured really well and represented very well in the fossil record. If you go back, you see that hybrids between elkhorn and staghorn are very rare. And they can look at this by shape, colony shape and different um aspects of their morphology, sort of the the shape and the way that the um polyps are arranged. And hybrids, yeah, they're just they're just not around very much. Hmm. But if you come now into and, and we also know from early surveys in the '70s and '80s on coral reefs, there's not a lot of hybrids. But recently, there are. We see a lot of hybrids going on, and they've done some genetic tests, and they're actually finding that these hybrids. So this is a cross between an elkhorn and a staghorn makes a hybrid. These hybrids are actually able to breed with other hybrids and make a second generation that seems to be viable.
4: Excellent. Okay.
3: So that's a really neat kind of uh, twist on the whole hybrids are always bad thing. Now, the catch is we don't know if that second generation of hybrids is viable. Uh. So we're still sort of waiting to see, you know, this this can happen where the first generation of hybrids is viable and seems really... um, Fit and and actually does very well, but then its kids peter out.
1: So that that's so even sort of worse, right? From a genetic standpoint, it
3: is. It's like a it is, and it's in what happens also is that these 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 uh, vigorous hybrids can often compete with their parents,
1: oh.
3: right? So they're competing with the elkhorns and the stag horns that maybe aren't doing as well, and if they start to take over those environments, but they don't. Have the ability to reproduce successfully for multiple generations, then you wind up with the hybrids actually being another threat to the parent. Now, to put another spin on it, <laughs> which is what corals love to do, these hybrids can also mate back with the elkhorn or with staghorn. Oh, wow! So you get what's called a back cross. Which gets Weird. even, you know, you guys, your guys' show is stuff to blow your mind. So this is yeah. getting really wacky. <laughs> so, um, so wait, I'm trying so, to envision
4: this. Given yeah. that the elk horns and the stag horns release at different times on the same night, do the hybrids mm-hmm. release like somewhere in the middle? There,
3: you know, that's a really good question, and I, I don't know the answer to that. Okay, they are going to be spawning the full moon this month. July is a big month for. Elkhorns and staghorns, July and August. So I can, I will send you guys an update or maybe we can throw it in the comments, but I will ask yeah, the folks down there doing the study right now. But that's a really good question. I'm not sure whose timing they take or if it's a, a combination. Their, their shape is definitely um, a range of in between the two parents, between the Elkhorn and staghorn. There's sort of a whole variety of shapes that these hybrids seem to be taking and when the hybrid back crosses, so when the um, the combo coral of, of Elkhorn and Staghorn then uh, fertilizes or mixes with an Elkhorn or a pure you know Staghorn and make this sort of back cross species, um, they tend to have slightly different shapes and sizes as well. So the good news on this is if there's not too much competition with the parent and there's not too much back crossing, the little bit of gene mixing and the little bit of hybridization that's happening could actually really help the species and could be a way that the the two species, the Elkhorn and the Staghorn, are trying to adapt to these changing environments and are actually dealing with some of the impacts. It's one way that species may be evolving. And we do see... Some, you know, uh, Dr. Fogarty is starting to see some very preliminary evidence of higher disease resistance, higher heat tolerance so to deal with some of the, the global warming issues and mass bleaching issues So that this is a positive um, and, and that we will be able to see new forms of, of these branching corals based on this hybridization. Or it could go the other way where again, these hybrids actually wind up to be not viable multi-generation and, you know, multiple uh, generations down the line and they, they wind up contributing to the decline of the two uh, parent species. So it's, um, it's something that she's studying really intently and watching and it's a fascinating I'm um, sort of, I don't know, whole, I don't know who to root
2: for, really. Right.
3: Well, it
4: sounds <laughs> we like, kind yeah, of your it, but it's important for us to keep an eye on, especially given the threats to uh, coral ecology that are going on.
3: Yeah. So I've got yeah, a, a, a lot.
4: biological sort of hypothetical question for you, because you say in the book the same question that immediately popped into my head as I was reading it, which is if corals don't have brains or eyes, how is it that they're seeing light? How is it that they're uh, sensing lunar patterns, things like that? Yeah. yeah. Um, and my question was, we just did a, a, a piece here recently about new research that came out about two months ago on underwater slime and algae, and that they're mm-hmm. able to, on a cellular level, sense light and move toward it. Uh, That like Mm -hmm. each cell on its own can quote see light and then like subsequently sort of crawls forward, and I'm wondering if you think that maybe is something like that possible with corals?
3: That's fascinating. I I will have to go and listen to your story because I I don't know much about the the um, how that kind of a, a slime can do that. That sounds really cool. Yeah, with corals, they definitely have light sensors. Um, I'm not up to speed on like the, the detailed physiology there for whether it's at a cellular level, whether it's, um, sort of a, uh, very primitive kind of organelle that, that we see in some worms that can, you know, tell if a shadow moves across, you know, light and dark, but they definitely, definitely have a way of sensing the light. But I'm not sure exactly how it works, to be honest. Okay. Um, I, can, I can dig into that a little further. But w- the reason why we know it's cued by light, though, and pretty specifically, is not only because the, the timing happens after sunset year on year so precisely, But it's also that we've done some experiments, um, and these these were initially started. The garbage (laughs) bags? Yeah, yeah, the garbage bags, right? So simple is best in science. And um, Dr. Nancy Knowlton, who now runs the the, uh, Marine Science Hall over at the Smithsonian, so when she was studying some of these systems, she was like, all right, well, if we want to see whether or not these corals can actually fertilize one another and what's going on between these different species. She looked at the lobes and the boulder star corals and was like, okay, well, they're delayed about an hour and a half apart. So what would happen if we tricked the lobe star coral, which is the later spawner, into thinking sunset happened sooner? So they took colonies and they put black garbage bags over them about an hour and a half before sunset. So they sort of faked the corals out into thinking that sunset had happened at say six o'clock rather than seven thirty. So lo and behold, it right an hour and a half later when they were cued to go off, they went off. And what they were able to do by by kind of sort of shifting the time of sunset earlier, they were able to actually get the lobe star coral and the boulder star coral colonies to spawn at the same time and then they were able to check and see sort of what happened if, if that were to occur so we know that the light cue is key because if you if you sort of quote-unquote mess with when sunset happens it it literally shifts exactly the timing of the release of, of the sperm and eggs so it's pretty cool
1: Indeed. Now, in discussing uh, these elaborate reproductive uh, methods that the coral use, um, th- there's a weakness in all of this, right? Uh, how does this reproductive strategy make corals so vulnerable to pollution, climate change, and these other uh, influences that are, are making so many of them uh, threatened? Yeah.
3: yeah. So there's a lot of reasons why corals are vulnerable to, to these threats and why they're being threatened. Um but when it comes to their sexual strategy, so this idea of the broadcast spotting, these mass orgies, the the real issue is that it all depends on everybody releasing their egg and sperm at the same time and that all these neighbors are coordinated across the reef. So we know that it's not only are there the cues from the moon phase and the sunset, but as the actual release is happening, there's likely some some level of uh, chemical communication to really get that timing very, very tight and very exact. And what happens is corals are starting to decline due to threats such as overfishing, um, which is creating more algae on the reef, and there's climate change, which is warming the waters and acidifying the waters, and all of these things, um, pollution and runoff, they're, they're wiping out corals. So coral colonies that are still left are spaced farther and farther apart. Hmm. This means that their ability to really sync up and their ability to get their sperm egg bundles to meet and mix at the surface is it's harder and harder to do that. The farther apart their space. Again, if you think about the hotel example, it's easier to coordinate with your partner when you're right there with them. And it's definitely, if you were to try to coordinate with your neighbors, you know, it would help to be able to see where they were in the process and, and, and know kind of what that timing was like so you could adjust. And the farther and farther apart these, these species are, the coral colonies are spaced, the, the harder it is to do. And this is, this is known as density dependence. So the, the amount of corals in, in proximity to each other actually affects How successful their fertilization rates are, and the farther apart their space, that level of fertilization goes down. So it's sort of a double whammy. Not only are you, not only are we wiping out coral colonies, you know, putting less less adults, less adults are out there able to spawn because they're dying, but the ones that are left are spaced farther apart, and so their odds of having successful sex. Go down. So it just winds up being a double whammy.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. EBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like
1: Now, some listeners might be wondering, well, if the the corals can reproduce asexually, then that's their backup plan, right? Why doesn't cloning solve the problem?
3: Yeah, and it's a really good question because coral colonies grow through asexual reproduction. So you start with this one little larvae that settles down from the the sea surface, will swim down, attach somewhere on a hard substrate, on a hard bottom, rocky bottom, old reef and create this one single cup with this one polyp. And then that polyp will divide and divide again and again, and, as- and that's the asexual reproduction. It clones itself. But um, clones are genetically identical. So there's no diversity in that coral colony. All those individuals are individuals, but they have the exact same genetic identity. So... This helps the colony grow and there's benefits to being a big colony, but it doesn't allow the species as a whole to have variety and and genetic diversity. And diversity is nature's insurance policy against all the changes that are, are wrought against us. So if a new disease develops, you need genetically diverse individuals in the population, some of whom may have a natural resistance. If um, there's a big shift in, in uh, say, predator pr- or, or prey, say there's there's a different food supply, you need individuals who might have slightly different um, morphology or slightly different um, genetic ability to digest a different type of food source so that they can survive. So as these different changes occur in the environment and different threats arise, that genetic diversity is really critical so that the species as a whole can survive and genetic diversity is created through sexual reproduction not asexual reproduction so it's when the sperm from one individual mixes and meshes with the eggs from another that a whole new DNA blueprint is formed and that is where the diversity of, of genetic uh, the, that is where the diversity that these species need comes from
4: so given so without we learned- sex
3: there's no diversity.
4: So given what we learned from you today about what's going, the new research that's going on with hybridization, I'm starting to wonder now if maybe that's the role of hybridization in some species is to further the diversity.
3: Yeah, and I think it might be. I think that's, that's one of the questions that Dr. Fogarty is really um, digging into to say, could it be that under certain circumstances, hybridization does work to help increase that genetic diversity in a way that allows for adaptation that allows for species to withstand a changing environment or changing threats so that it can then move forward and maybe it'll form a new species eventually that's you know collected over time from the genes from the two two parents prior uh, to it you know in this case the staghorn and the elkhorn yeah um i think it's still it's possible, and that's what makes it a really intriguing space to investigate. Um, but we, we just don't know yet, but it absolutely is possible.
1: So, where are we right now in terms of coral loss? So what are we doing, and what, what can we do to fix or, to, or to at least to address the problem?
3: Oh, uh, yeah. So, you know, this is where I, I try to find that balance between staying optimistic while also being really honest that the data coming in, it's sobering. So last week's conference, again, um, it's really alarming how quickly we are losing coral reefs. And they are being hit by every, it's sort of a perfect storm. So um, we're losing them due to overfishing, which has removed a lot of the grazers on the reef, so the equivalent of the cows that chomp back the seaweed. So we're getting corals overgrown by seaweed because we've taken out things like parrotfish and sea urchins. Um, we are losing corals extremely quickly now to bleaching events. These are um, the result of global warming. It's when water's warm, corals exist naturally right at their edge of thermal tolerance. Um, you know, they don't have air conditioning or heating systems in their houses. So they live right at that perfect window where they are just warm enough. And if you crank up the heat of the, the ocean too much, and we're talking one to two degrees Celsius, so not a lot of change, uh, coral stress. And that stress um, disrupts a really unique relationship that they have with a tiny microscopic little algae called a zozencele. You can call them zoaks. And these zokes are food factories for the coral. They actually live inside the coral tissue and they photosynthesize just like a tree, um, turning sunlight into energy. And the energy and the new, nu- in the, um, sort of, uh, nutrition that those, those produce are what the coral can then use to have extra energy to build their really massive and impressive skeletons. Cause the, the truth is, is the, the water environment where corals exist the reason why that water is like that amazing, clear, beautiful, tropical, turquoise blue that we all love to swim swim through and see for hundreds of feet is because there's nothing in it. It's a desert.
4: Which makes it's it ideal deserts. for them, right?
3: Right, which makes it perfect for the, this coral algae relationship because they can make their own nutrients and be able to build, build these reefs and have really clean, clear waters. And when we throw pollution in there, it disrupts that that relationship. And when we heat the water, it especially disrupts that relationship. And the bleaching is literally the coral kicking out the, the zoaks. And it turns the coral white. They, they get their color from having these symbiotic algae in there. And so when they bleach, they don't necessarily die. The coral does not necessarily die right away. Sometimes they can recover. But... Oftentimes they will die. And even if they do recover, it can take them several years to regain the, those symbionts and regain enough energy to then be able to reproduce. Because mm. again, producing those sperm egg bundles takes a long, a lot of energy. And, you know, just like us, if we're sick and we're not healthy, We're not going to do the, um, the extra things. (laughs) You know, we're going to every, all the energy we have goes to just the basic survival. Right. And sex is not basic survival. So production of, of sperm and eggs drops or the number of sperm, you know, sperm and eggs that are produced will go down. So all of these things and climate change especially, um, is really, really threatening the reef. The the Great Barrier Reef off Australia, the largest structure in the world, um, we just had the worst bleaching on record. Um, so it was their summer, right, uh, in February, in March. And we are seeing rates of severe bleaching that are just off the charts. We've never seen it like this before. I mean, we're talking well over half the reef. Um, and that's really really alarming you know some of these colonies are hundreds of years old and if they go it's going to be a long time before that you know before a new coral colony can can take over that role and and perform all of the benefits that that type of structure can provide
4: yeah to clarify for our listeners my understanding mm -hmm. is even at their growth rate when they're they're broadcast spawning Something like that would take thousands of years to regrow a reef.
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, coral colonies are slow. These are slow growing. Think of an old growth forest. Right. You know, where where your tallest trees are hundreds and hundreds of years old. Um, To get that level of complexity takes for for, centuries and centuries. And to build something as big as a grape barrier reef, absolutely. It's thousands. You can drill down... You know, scientists will core down to see, you know, colonies that have built and stacked up on top of each other over over time, and it's thousands and thousands of years. So it's um, a slow, long process that has worked really, really well and has allowed them to withstand quite big changes, you know, in the environment. I mean, we, we've had big changes in the past, but those changes haven't happened so quickly. And so the problem with, you know, climate change caused by humans, caused by us, is that it's happening very, very quickly. And so the ability for these corals to adapt um, seems to be pretty compromised. And and we're seeing some pretty uh, pretty sad state of affairs. Um, I think there's over 600 species of coral now that are being considered for threatened or endangered status um, Mm -hmm. because of the losses. So that's that's a bummer, but there is some good news. Um, you know, it's I definitely, and we can talk about that um, for sure because it's it's not the kind of situation where we should throw our hands up and say, "Oh well, um, it's the bummer that my kids won't get to dive on a cool reef." Because that's that's not necessarily the case. You know, the door's not closed um, with coral restoration uh, in places where they're actually it's sort of like IVF for corals. They go out when the when the corals spawn at night, and they they're collecting some of the sperm and eggs, and they're bringing them back to labs, um, and and going through a whole process that actually increases the fertilization rate, and then they're rearing the larvae and then the the juvenile corals up to sort of a bigger size so that they'll they'll have a better chance to um, survive on the reef and not get overgrown by algae or not get eaten by a predator. And then they outplant these corals, and they're finding that they're really successful. And some of the ones that they've done over the past two to three years, those corals now are spawning in the wild, which is great. So there's some really neat um, examples of coral farming for for restoration that are are helping to sort of repopulate areas that have been uh, hit hard by by some of these events. There's also um, a lot more work and, and attention now in fisheries management to protect herbivores so again these are the grazers the cows of the reef and um, you know for the listeners out there who do like to eat fish do not eat parrotfish that's one great thing you can do to help corals is encourage folks to leave parrotfish um, on the reefs where they can be doing their job to eat back this algae and you know we can talk more extensively there's some great resources out there but you know, using tourism dollars if you want to go to the Caribbean or go to the Great Barrier Reef, support those countries that have good management in place, that do abide by certain fisheries policies, that do have protected areas, that do enforce their their um, pollution and and clean water rules so that the reefs there are um, given the best chance they can. And we have seen that while... We've seen that local management can make a difference. It's absolutely a way to help corals resist and get through some of these, these challenges. That said, without addressing climate change, there's no way. So we have to deal with climate change. We have to support, you know, legislators and policies that are really progressive at this stage. And there's fantastic proposals out there. There's great clean energy technologies. Really, it's political will at this point. And that actually can be a very hopeful thing because that means all of us, if we get together kind of like the corals do and synchronize our actions, we can actually turn, turn down the heat <laughs> and, and t- try to change the tide on this. Um, and it's really important that we do so. So.
4: I like so that's that. What
3: I'm trying to think of. That's,
4: I, I like that. That's a nice bow to put on it, is yeah. that, like, for us to be able to help them out so that we can continue to have this ecosystem together, we need to sort of learn how to behave like them.
3: Yeah, sync think, think up a bit <laughs> for bigger impact. Um, another, I, I know, that, you know, it's always nice to give very practical things. Um, another really important, uh, especially coming into summer here in the Northern Hemisphere, that folks can do is when you go to the beach, if you are swimming or diving in areas um, around coral reefs, don't use sunscreen with oxybenzonate.
1: Mm, okay.
3: Benzonate, excuse me. Oxybenzonate is, or um, oxybenzone, I think it's also called. They're finding more and more that the impact of sunscreen, um, especially in very sort of shallow bays with lots of tourists, is significant. And again, that's a local impact. We can all be much more conscious of. And if you just google, you know, coral safe sunscreen, you'll there's, you know, tons that come up. Um this is new work that's been done. We we just didn't realize uh how sensitive again that that corals were to some of these chemical inputs. So just be smart about your sunscreen choice. That's a really simple way um to try to be more conscious and and give give corals a bit of a leg up.
1: Cool. And is, is there a particular organization, a coral advocacy group that um, that that one should follow, or even you know contribute to monetarily that can also help?
3: Well, those are great. That's a really great question. There there are several really excellent groups out there that are doing wonderful work. Um, there's a group called Reef, which is the Reef Environmental and Education Foundation. They do a lot of science, but also volunteer work. So folks can go check out reef.org. Um, there's coral monitoring, monitoring networks and groups like the Nature Conservancy and others, um, especially uh, in the field. So Nature Conservancy in the U.S. Virgin Islands, the Nature Conservancy of Florida, are, do call on on volunteers to help um monitor for bleaching. So if you're someone who goes diving or snorkeling or wants to take a trip, you can go and um, report what you've seen so that we can help keep track of where bleaching is occurring and, and, and try to um, understand those patterns better. So I think it's called Coral Reef Watch, and I believe it's run um, by NOAA, which is the, you know, the U.S. government's federal um, arm that Studies oceans, but again, folks like the Nature Conservancy I know help train volunteers to to execute on that program. So those are those are some that come to mind that are doing you know direct work with corals. Um, there's other great work by um, groups like Moat Marine Lab in Florida that are doing some of these um, farming uh, and restoration techniques. So if you if you're sort of more towards wanting to support uh, some of the science behind how we're studying and learning, they're they're a great a great place to look. There's a lot, but I would say that um, that those are the ones that kind of immediately pop pop into my head. Um, oh, there's another. There's a wonderful initiative by um, uh, the Weight Foundation called the Blue Halo Initiative. And this was initially started by a woman named Dr. Ayana Johnson. And um, they it's island-wide marine policy um, and marine sort of management for Caribbean countries. At this point, it's in the Caribbean. But it's really great because it's, it combines education and outreach, it combines fisheries management, and it combines sort of typical conservation all into one so that these island governments are actually implementing a very holistic policy that works to protect their waters, but also, you know, support fisher livelihoods, but make sure that they're they're taking all interests into account. So that's another really neat initiative um, to look into or again see where the Blue Halo projects are and support going to those countries um, for you know for your vacation because they're ones that you know um your your tax, your, your tourism tax is going to to governments that are really trying to do the right thing. Um, I'm trying to think if anything else comes to mind. Um,
1: well, if any uh, additional thought, ones come up, you can always um, you know shoot them to us via email, and we'll include them uh, you know on the landing page for the episode.
3: Yeah, there's. I think there's um, the last one I'd say is there is the Coral Restoration Foundation which is, I think, just coralrestoration.org. And they do some really great work as well um, in terms of trying to, again, farm out corals. And, and I think they might also have some volunteer opportunities, which is it's fun. I mean, they're it's neat to get to go and spend your vacation helping to grow baby corals or outplant them on a reef or, or tend to ones that are out there. It's, it's a nice... Nice way to really feel like you're just like going and doing, um, you know, tree plantings on Earth Day. You can go do coral plantings and and help reefs to recover.
1: Cool. Well, um, is there anything else you want to get out there before we close it up here?
3: Um, Um, I don't think so. Just for folks to know that, unlike so much sex in the sea, coral spawning is something we can actually see pretty easily. Again, it happens in the shallows. You just need a mask. You don't even need fins. <laughs> Go right offshore. There's lots of places in the world that are, you know, safe and easy to get to, and and you can just swim out with a flashlight, water, you know, waterproof flashlight, um, and and you can watch this. It happens right after sunset, and it's starting now. I mean, from now through October in the Caribbean. There will be different mass spawning events, and if you go online and Google them, there, there are schedules, and you can go and and watch this happen, and it really is, um, not only is it magical and sort of mystical and ethereal in, in just how it looks visually, but there's something that I find incredibly uplifting and inspiring in knowing that despite all the threats, despite all the negative impacts that we are having on these animals every year, they continue to soldier on. These mass spawnings still are happening. And that rhythm of nature that has been established for thousands and thousands of years continues to, to hold strong so that the next generation can be possible. And you can witness that and you can see all that potential and all that hope floating up right before your eyes. And it's, um, to me, it's, it's what keeps me going.
1: Cool. Well, Sex in the Sea is the book. It is currently out on hardcover, uh, ebook, audio book, and uh, as we've stressed uh, several different times on the podcast, uh, on, on past podcast episodes, it's just a, a delightful, insightful read, full of just some mind blowing, but also uh, uh, entertaining content. Uh, we've recommended it as, as like, just a perfect bit of summer reading for our listeners.
4: Yeah. uh, In fact, we just did our summer reading episode a couple of weeks ago and uh, we recommended this book Mara to our listeners. And, and also I just want to say that I really appreciate the work that you put into your prose in this book and uh, just the analogies and similes and metaphors, the kind of work that you do there makes it so much more readable than the hundreds of articles that we read on similar topics and uh, r- really, kind of picturesque too. Yeah.
3: Oh well, thank you. I I appreciate that, and appreciate so much the support you guys have have given for it. And I'm I'm just hopeful that your listeners will find it entertaining and inspiring, and uh, hopefully some really good cocktail party f- fodder. So uh, you
1: can <laughs> definitely
3: have some fun facts around the barbecue. <laughs>
1: All right, so there you have it, a whole lot of coral biology, a whole lot of coral sex, if you will, uh, and some, some sobering but indeed hopefully optimistic information about where we are in terms of coral loss and um, readjusting, pivoting, if you will, yeah. um, to try and, um, and, and and save these species that that do so much for our ecology. And one of the things that I
4: really loved about this interview is that, while we had done research ahead of time and prepped, and we'd read her book, and we were we we were ready to have this conversation, you know, Mara in just the last week had already learned yeah. new stuff because the science is moving so fast. So you heard it here first, folks, or, or maybe mm-hmm. maybe there were some articles that came out of that conference she was mentioning. But I, you know, I'm I'm glad that we were able to talk about all these changes with hybridization that uh, scientists are realizing about.
1: Indeed, yeah. Some 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 really cool data from the book, and 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 some stuff that has just come out in the last couple of weeks. So, okay, you out there, maybe
4: you've had an experience like Robert, where he uh, went to Jamaica. Have you been up close and personal with coral reefs? Tell us about it. Uh, send us your pictures. Let us know what you think about the coral bleaching effects that are going on. You can do that on social media. We are all over the place on social media. We're lousy with social media, <laughs> as Josh Clark likes to say. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr and Instagram as Blow The Mind and you can always visit us at our home base
1: at stufftoblowyourmind.com. And I want to throw in too, you know, with Facebook, the algorithm is always changing. Uh if you would visit us, Blow The Mind on Facebook visit us there. Uh, hit Make sure that you're subscribed, but also make sure that you've uh, hit the adjustments so that we show up in your feed because that's going to ensure that no matter what changes in the Facebook algorithm, we can still get our content to you.
4: Yeah, and basically this is so that you can be updated whenever a new podcast episode comes out or we can let you know when Robert or I or Joe have recorded a video about something related to the show or published an article.
1: And if you're fed up with all the social media stuff, as one can, uh, can be <laughs> in this day and age, there's always email. That's the way to get something directly to us, no in-between third party. And you can reach us via email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com